0: Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. Good morning, friends. Welcome back. Uh, I'd like to call us to worship now, as we have been for the last few weeks. Um, Most of the psalms that we have used so far uh, for our calls to worship have come from this part of the text of Scripture. These chapters in 1 Samuel, when David is wandering in the wilderness, were just prolific for him for writing many, many psalms of praise. And so I hope that you had a good time today discussing many of those psalms. We're going to um, pull a phrase from Psalm 52, verses 8 and 9 this morning. This is in particular when David is just um, so distraught by what has happened to the priests at Nob. His heart is broken. He is doubting in some ways, just wondering, "God, is this really what I'm going to have to endure again and again?" Um, but yet, yeah, this is how he ends this psalm, Psalm 52. So let's let's read it together. Stay seated today. Let's read it together, and and let's just use it as a meditation. A few seconds before I before I um, move us on, in prayer. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. So just a few seconds, just bow your head. Think on those words. Meditate and give your praise to the Father as we prepare our minds. Oh, God, we do trust together in your steadfast love forever and ever. We thank you forever because you have done it. And we wait together for your name, for it is good. We declare it. We rest in your goodness. We rest in your mercy. We rest in your kindness to us, Father. We're so thankful for the ways that you reveal yourself to us in these pages of scripture that we have studied this week, thank you. Thank you for showing yourself to us as a, as a merciful and a gracious God. Thank you for the heart of David that, that beat like yours to pen these words. And God, we just um, we are thankful for what you have taught us individually, together in our groups. And now we look forward to what you will teach us um, in this space. So would you help us, Father, to empty our minds, empty our hearts of all of those things that hinder us? And would you give us focus and attention on you? Would you speak through Jessica? Would you give her, God, exactly the words that you want to share with us today? Would you move her aside? Would you help us to hear from you? We're so grateful for her taking this step of faith to, to speak to us, to share with us what, what you have taught her this week. And so we look forward to what you will show us, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I do want to introduce my friend Jessica Skaggs to you today. Um, You are in for a treat. I want you to know that Jessica's husband, Austin, serves as one of the elders of our congregation, and so I think it's always good um, to know who our elders are. So Jessica serves alongside of him, and she's just been a great friend to me. So would you give your attention to Jessica? Good morning,
1: ladies. I had to put makeup on my whole face today. (laughs) Um, I am really excited to walk through this passage together and to let this ancient story transform us. Amy did a wonderful job last week showing us what God's king is going to be like. And this week, chapters 21 to 26, highlight some of the lessons God used to prepare David for the work laid out for him. Next week's chapters include the climax of 1st and 2nd Samuel, the death of Saul and the end of his line. So the tension is really building here in this story. David is running for his life, pursued by a murderous Saul. If we were in an English class, we might talk about some themes that emerge as this pursuit continues. But in life, we would simply call them life lessons instead. And they seem to flow in and out of these events, not in a linear way, but more organically. We see David maturing in his responses as the same lessons appear and reappear. This is a training ground. The Lord, the king of heaven's armies, is with him, sovereignly ordering these events, sovereignly protecting him. As David experiences wilderness wanderings, wanderings, running from Saul, he has to choose worship or wrath in response. The lessons are worship, wilderness, and wrath. Let's first walk through these stories to see David's maturing responses and watch the glimpses of the Lord's larger story of his coming perfect king. And then we'll talk about why the lessons are so timely and focus shifting for us today. In chapter 21, or in chapter 20 last week, David just warned, uh, Jonathan just warned David with an arrow confirming David's suspicion that Saul is trying to kill him. So chapter 21 opens with David fleeing from his home to Ahimelech, the priest at Nob. This begins a wilderness time for him. The Lord provides bread and a sword here through his faithful priest. We see a similar story in Christ's life when he is walking with his disciples through a field on the Sabbath in Matthew 12. Christ points back to this exact moment in David's life, challenging the Pharisees who are outraged at his violation of the Sabbath laws they had become consumed with the letter of the law and had forgotten Hosea 6.6, which says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. By pointing to this story, Christ is affirming the purity and appropriateness of David's actions. Okay, so David keeps running and flees to Gath, to Ashish, the king of Gath. And remember when he acts insane, letting the spittle, run down his beard, and acting like a madman? On the surface, it appears that David is acting out of faithless fear, and he is desperate. But our homework pointed out that we have the benefit of some of his psalms to see his inner motivation as a posture of trust and worship. David cries out in Psalm 34, the angel of the Lord encamps, around those who fear him, and he delivers them. And again, in Psalm 56, um, David cries out in a refrain, When I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? We see David's worship rise in one of his most desperate times. At the end, we're going to talk about um, what this does for him as he enters the next challenges. Chapter 22 shows David hiding from Saul, but his attention narrows to a laser focus on God's direction. This is where God is providing, or David is providing for and protecting the fringe, his parents, and God's people. Then the gruesome story of Saul unfolds where he charges Doeg the Edomite to kill the priests at Nob, the whole town, in fact, in wrath, because Ahimelech gave aid to David. Saul commissions this foreigner, Doeg, to put to the sword the whole town, children, infants, women, cattle. Our homework reminded us that this was what God had instructed Saul to do the Amalekites in 15. What he was unwilling to do for the Lord to the Amalekites because of self-interest, he's now willing to do against the Lord to Nob because of his self-interest. Tragically, Saul is blinded by who the true enemy is. This continues a long lesson for David in wrath or vengeance. It was started back in chapters 18 through 20 from last week. How he responds to this wrath over and over again changes as we go through this story. The Lord here has his anointed one pursued with murderous intent. Like, like Christ was pursued as a baby at the hands of Herod. Jesus later tells the twelve as he's sending them out in Matthew 10 that a student is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household hold on to that idea of members of God's household for a bit, and we'll circle around to it. Moving into chapter 23, we, saw, we see all three lessons reappear. David hears that the town of Keilah is being attacked by the Philistines. Despite the fear that his men have, he immediately inquires of the Lord twice to see if he should run to their aid. When Saul is told what David is doing, he arrogantly says, God has handed him over to me, a repeated phrase in these chapters. And in wrath and vengeance, he pursues David pursuing the Philistines. Now David seeks the Lord a third time. Worship is many things, not just songs of praise. And here we see David's focus as worship intensify. His eyes are not on his circumstances, the feelings or advice of those around him, or the injustice of being betrayed by those he has called to lead. His eyes are on the Lord. He waits for instruction from him alone. Verse 14 says, Day after day Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. Saul had interpreted his circumstances incorrectly. As an open door from the Lord. So David escapes to the desert, read wilderness again, with Saul in pursuit. Christ himself had a time in the wilderness, and the element of focused attention as worship here points us to Christ. And again, in the garden, after years of plots against him, Jesus' blood, sweat, focus, surrender, and worship is trained on the Lord and what is about to come. In contrast to David, he will ultimately be handed over to his pursuers for the fulfillment of the scriptures. Chapter 24, Saul is once again told of David's location in yet another desert, Reed Wilderness, and pursues, and, um, pursues him to the cave at En Gedi, where Saul goes in to relieve himself. It happens to be the very cave where David and his men are hiding in the back. David's men see this as God's provision for wrath and vengeance. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemies into your hands. Now, David wavers here, and he does cut off a piece of Saul's robe. However, he is immediately conscience-stricken and rebukes his men, and does not allow them to harm Saul. Their advice seemed good, but he feared the Lord. What follows in the rest of the chapter is a long challenge by David to Saul. It's important to note that David isn't silent in the face of this wrongful vengeance. We saw back in chapters 18 through 20, when Saul first started to pursue and attack David, he would just run. But here a change happens. He starts to turn and confront this injustice. But when he confronts, he always maintains respect for Saul and his kingship. David is putting his wrath into the Lord's hands. The record of Samuel passing opens up chapter 25, in which David is back in a previous wilderness, desert wilderness, and we meet Nabal and Abigail. Nabal, the fool, as he is called, insults David, and David immediately wants to kill him and all of his men. God is faithful here to send a friend, Abigail, to warn him against avenging himself. When Nabal dies, suddenly David praises the Lord in worship for upholding his cause and exacting wrath and vengeance for him. With Nabal dead, David sends for Abigail to become his wife. Here we get a preview into one of David's lifelong weaknesses, women. The writer here reminds us of another woman he had already married and of his first wife, who's going to come back into the story um, later, and this is just the beginning. For David and his family, this weakness seems to be hereditary. Both David and his sons will struggle here with tragic costs to themselves in Israel. At his best, David serves as a type of Christ. But here, we're reminded of his sinfulness, and we're left hungry for the perfect one yet to come. With the lessons of God's faithfulness fresh on his mind, David has one more lesson in wrath against Saul. In chapter 26, David's desert wilderness location is yet again betrayed by those he is called to serve. And Saul musters all of his men and heads out on the attack. Saul and his troops fall into a deep sleep by the Lord, as it says in chapter twenty-six, twelve. David and Abishai come upon Saul. Remember Abishai begging David, saying, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. But David instantly refuses to act on his wrath. We see the fruit of all these hard-earned lessons. Abishai's counsel is well-meant, but wrong. David knows he can and should trust his cause to the Lord. Again, David challenges Saul, Why are you pursuing your servant? David is not silent in the face of this injustice, but he challenges in an honoring way by protecting the life of his king. The chapter closes with David saying, the Lord delivered you into my hands, but I would not lay a hand on you. He passed the test. Remember, think back to James 1.13 about how the Lord never tempts us because he never desires that we sin, but he does test his people to strengthen and grow their faith. We're going to see David waver and his faith of the Lord's protection as the book of Samuel continues. But here, he's at a high point. David trusts his cause to the Lord, like Christ. He says in the garden, may your will be done. So now we've looked at the main life lessons and how they weave in and out of this season in David's life. This time in David's life has become very personal to me over the last few months as I studied them because our family has been through an extended wilderness period, 10 years, with my son, Charlie. When Charlie was eight months old, he began having seizures. They weren't long seizures, maybe 10 to 20 seconds, but a few days after they began, they wouldn't stop. He would have a seizure, stop, and then a minute later, go back into a seizure that clustering, as the doctors called it, would continue for an hour at a time, stop, and begin again an hour later. We were at Scott & White for a time, and then he transferred to Texas Children's in Houston. The doctors started making an impact on the cluster seizures with a cocktail of four medicines, and we were sent home to make slow adjustments under constant medical supervision by phone and long drives to Houston for five years. By his kindergarten year, after years of medicine adjustments, failing and trying new medicines, we realized medicine therapy wasn't enough and we began the several months process of testing needed to pursue surgery. He had brain surgery in November and had two seizure-free months. In January, the seizures returned, and his team felt like another more in-depth surgery would be the option, the best option for him. So in April, we had a second surgery. When he came out of anesthesia, he had weakness on the whole right side of his body due to the swelling in his brain, which meant months of speech occupational and physical therapy, to walk, write, and speak clearly again. He now has remarkable seizure coverage, though it is not a complete cure. These years of trauma to his brain have left a mark. Charlie struggles with attention, expressive language, emotional and social maturity. He's never been diagnosed with this, but His symptoms most closely match those of a traumatic brain injury patient. He will have great days and terrible days. He struggles with anger and emotional outbursts. He doesn't get invited to many things and struggles to make and keep friends. This journey was beyond anything our family ever thought we could endure. The only thing I can say for certain was that I knew God loved my son more than me, more than I did. My pain was so intense in his infancy, and I felt God leading me to surrender Charlie into his care. Honestly, it was the only way I was able to stay sane, and I had to do it over and over again. This summer, <clears throat> right before I started studying chapters 21 to 26 intensely, I um, Here's a great picture of them. (laughs) Charlie had a huge setback. Quarantine upset his routine, and we didn't understand at first how important that was. His anger got worse and worse, and a huge outburst one day meant that now my husband and I had to keep our 11-year-old in our eyesight constantly. More doctor and therapy appointments and a new medicine. I felt the walls closing in, and I hit a breaking point. I felt embarrassed, exhausted, incompetent, trapped, and brittle. And as I read and reread this Bible study, God started to show me some things. One day I was reading David say at the end of Second Samuel, God has brought me out into this spacious place. And I remember crying out, Lord, when will you do this for me? I kept reading and kept studying. I saw the deep pain David is enduring here. What we read as a few sentences or a chapter represents events over years with terrific pain and fear that pushed David beyond what he thought he could endure the Lord began to work a change in him. I saw the Lord clearly working, guiding, and training his anointed one. I felt the Lord teaching me to reframe my wilderness time, to think about it in a new light. The limitations of Charlie's health and maturity on what our family could do or how we could serve the Lord were not things to rush through, so that I could get to the better things. This was the very thing through which God had been training me to receive the deep and abiding gifts that suffering and surrender bring. Enduring this in surrender was bringing me freedom. The Lord had been changing me too. Do you have something so difficult in your life that no matter what resources, prayers, striving you throw at it, you cannot fix it, you cannot change it. This may not be something to run from, but the very means through which the Lord wants to bring you to the end of yourself, to the place where you die to sin and self, and you make way for God to be all in you. This is your training ground. The Lord, the King of Heaven's armies, as David calls him, is with you as he was with David. Let's come back to the idea about being members of God's household. Throughout quarantine, I happened to be reading a book before bed each night called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by an English pastor. Um, In the 1600s, it's an incredible book actually written during the Black Plague and uh, During the English Civil War So the word quarantine pops up from time to time Lots of political upheaval. I found it to be an incredibly timely read One night I came across this passage. It's about a page in length. So I've shortened it for you here The section is titled, Knowing God's Usual Way of Dealing with His People. We often think God's providences are strange and troublesome and do not know what to make of them. This comes from not being used to the usual way God handles His people. Like newcomers to a household or new employees at a company, we just need to give ourselves time to see why the old hands do things in their peculiar ways. Usually, when God intends to bring the greatest blessing for his people, he first brings them into the lowest condition. Some may view every such lowering as God abandoning and forsaking his people, or at least he means them little good. But a child of God is not troubled. He remembers that when God intended to raise Joseph to be second in command over Egypt, he first cast him into a dungeon. When the Lord wanted to set David on a throne, he made him to be hunted like quail by his enemies. God even dealt with his own son. Even dealt this way with his own son. Christ himself ascended to glory by the path of suffering. And if God dealt with his own son this way, how much more with his people? It is always darkest before the dawn. We see this idea again in Romans eight seventeen through 18. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing the glory that will be revealed in us. also circle back around to the role of worship, one of David's life lessons, um, in this painful time for him. This year, we've been talking a lot about vaccines. Um, Remember that a vaccine helps fight off infection before it is even encountered, but then an antidote helps defeat infection once it has taken root. And here, Worship works as both the vaccine and the antidote to despair, self-pity, faithless fear that can take root as David walks through this training, as we walk through ours. This is one lesson I wish I had been able to learn faster. Sisters, worship is one of our most powerful, offensive tools in this life. We will all face wilderness times as we follow Jesus. He promised us that in this world we will have trouble. The question is, how will you respond? Will you surrender your control in worship, or will you try to take control with wrath? The Lord in his goodness is weaving wilderness and worship into my life and teaching me about surrender. Maybe your life lesson isn't... Um, In wrath, maybe it's surrender, forgiveness, humility, isolation, fear and anxiety, acceptance and love, maybe trust, maybe several of these. And if you do not know the Lord this way, if this kind of relationship sounds completely foreign to you, This is the perfect time to seek him. Christ saw us in our helpless state and came to repair the unbridgeable gap that our sin created between us and God. He lived the perfect life that we could never live and died the death that we deserved. On the third day, he rose again as he said he would. And in doing that, he defeated sin and death for all who believe in him. It is now possible for us to have perfect fellowship with the Lord. This is the gospel, the good news. But as my friend Cherisha Shador encouraged me the other day to add when I tell this story, the gospel is not just for salvation. Christ isn't just our ticket to heaven. While we continue living out our days here on earth, it changes everything about how we relate to God, Christ, our fellow man, our world. Christ changes you now. And that is exactly what is on display in our story today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for recording these stories for our benefit Please help us in our helpless state. Learn what you are teaching us so that you can be all in all to us. We want to be changed by you, to live poured out lives to your glory. Thankful always to your son, Jesus, who purchased our freedom. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.